Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Paul says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Two weeks ago, Christy and Liv and I drove up to Mount Mitchell, the tallest peak east of the Mississippi, as many of you know. And I was struck once again of the amazing view that being 6,684 feet above sea level actually grants you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the passage immediately after ours, has sometimes been called the mountain peak or the summit of the book of Ephesians. And if that's true, then the first two chapters of Ephesians is that winding road through the foothills leading up to that great peak, the Blue Ridge Parkway, if you will. And just like there are overlooks along the Blue Ridge Parkway to park your car and consider the great view on your way to the top, verses 2 through 12 of Ephesians chapter 3 is like that. Paul takes a detour. He stops along the way. He pulls off the road he's been traveling to pause for a moment and tell us something. Did you notice how he does that? Look at verse 1. He begins with, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of of you Gentiles. And then it's pretty clear that Paul starts to say something and then he breaks off. He stops for a moment and takes a detour. It says, for this reason. Now ask yourself, why does he say, for this reason? And actually what he's doing is he's referencing chapter 2 and he's referencing to the fact that Christ and the gospel unites diverse people who would otherwise never, never get along in any other way. Remember, we looked at last week that the gospel destroys the divisions between human beings that can't be eradicated any other way, and he brings them together. And the case study for how amazingly God does this is what we saw last week, that he brings the Jews and the Gentiles together. In chapter 2, there's a rather long discussion 
about that. So Paul starts off saying, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he suddenly breaks off. Now, what was he going to say? It's actually not that difficult to realize what he was going to say. If you look at verse 14, he says, for this reason, in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then in verse 14, he says the same thing, for this reason. He was about to say, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, bow my knees before the Father, and I pray this prayer for you. But something makes him pause and change course and give a parenthetical sermon. And he starts talking to us about his calling. If you look there, he says, basically, I guess you've heard, Paul says. I understand and assume that you've heard that God has given me a special gift and calling. I've, I've gotten this great insight into the gospel, and it's my job to take it to you Gentiles and to preach it to you. I became a servant of this gospel. And then he gives us this long list of his job description. But I want you to know, I don't believe Paul is primarily writing this simply to give us his job description. And I don't believe that's what he's primarily doing because recently I was struck by verse 13 and actually have come to understand verses 2 through 12 in light of verse 13. You see what he says there in verse 13? After listing all these things, he says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. Paul wasn't actually trying to teach us anything about his job description. I mean, he is, but it's in a cursory kind of way. He's even said, you already know this. You already have heard all of this. You already know my resume. I was a pastor with you just a few short years ago. You know this stuff. His whole point was that he didn't want them to be discouraged because of his situation. And what is his situation? I've already mentioned it in the children's sermon. Paul was in prison as he writes this to the Christians in Ephesus. And he's not just speaking metaphorically, therefore, in verse 1. He's actually in Roman custody. Now look, some of you are saying, but yeah, what about all those deep theological truths in verses 2 through 10? Listen, this is, this is a, a passage with great theological truths, with one great theological concept being laid on top of another with amazing references to the great mystery of Christ you can just look through there in those verses verse 3 verse 4 verse 6 and verse 9 the mystery of Christ that's how Paul refers to it and one of those theological theological truths is that that great mystery of Christ is a mystery not in the sense of something that needs to be discovered not not something that needs to be figured out not something that needs to be solved. Where I come from in Asheville, people love to think about this verse. Ah, the mystery of God. We've got to somehow figure it out. We've got to somehow solve the issue and the problem of who God is. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about here. It's not a mystery to be figured out, but it's a mystery that was once concealed that God has now revealed. There's a great theological depth, even to coming to understand what Paul is saying there. But then there are further truths brought out about the gracious mystery of God that was revealed to show his eternal plan for the Gentiles to belong together with the Jews and hearing the gospel and having the riches of Jesus Christ given to them. Paul's, you can see him layering on top of one another here. But this is nothing new. 
Paul has already talked about all these things in Ephesians. He's just giving a sum up. And he's doing it in order that the people to whom he's writing might not be discouraged. That's the point of what Paul is doing here. And just think about that for a moment. Some of them might begin to say, Paul's in prison, therefore the voice of Paul will surely be silenced. And this is no ordinary Christian. Surely this is a disaster. We, we need Paul. All the churches need Paul. The very cause of the gospel needs Paul. If this kind of thing can happen to Paul, what hope is there for us. That's what they're thinking. Our great leader, the Apostle Paul, is in prison. If that can happen to him, what will happen to little me? And isn't it our native instinct to become discouraged and lose heart when bad things happen to us? In fact, if you look down here, the verb that's translated in our English text, to lose heart, appears in secular Greek to describe the experience of a woman giving birth, finding the strain so great that she feels she cannot sustain the hours of childbirth. I've seen childbirth. It's our first child. I'm about to see childbirth again with our second child in as little as three weeks. I get what he's saying here. And you women who have given birth get it more than I do. He's saying you can become discouraged like that. You can cry out in pain in life like that. You can be in the middle of it and think, how can I continue? How can I go on? They're discouraged and they're losing heart. So what does Paul say to them about how he views his own situation and their discouragement? And as as I give you a few points this morning, let me First, ask you this question. How do you deal with suffering and discouragement? I didn't say, do you ever experience it? I know that you experience it. The question is, how do you deal with it? Are you undone by it? Does it unravel you? Are you crushed? Do you lose heart? Do you lash out at everyone around you And God Himself. How do you deal with suffering and discouragement? Are you at peace in those times? Not do you like it, not do you enjoy it, but are you calm? Is there an inner, supernatural, God-given peace that you know in those times for your soul? Paul has that supernatural God-given peace that allows him not to lose heart, but he anticipates that others may not have that same kind of peace. And here's what he says about it. If you want that kind of inner, supernatural, God-given peace, and you want that kind of peace to transform your life, then you need, in all circumstances, and this is the first point, to be captured by Christ's purposes for you. You need to be captured by Christ's purposes for you. The second thing you need is you need to be, in all circumstances, captured by God's grace to you. And the third thing is that in all circumstances, you need to be captured by Christ's suffering for you. Christ's purposes, God's grace, Christ's 
suffering. So first, you need to be captured by Christ's purpose. You see in verse 1 that Paul doesn't draw attention to the fact that he's a prisoner of the emperor of Rome. Paul didn't view himself as a prisoner of Caesar or Rome or any other earthly power. What does he say there? He says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, willing to suffer for him. Paul knew who he was, and Paul knew what he was for. And this was a liberating reality for him, focusing his mind, enabling him to prioritize the rest of his life. It anchored him. He knew that no matter his circumstance and no matter that there were others who thought his life seemed bleak, he knew that God had a purpose for him. But here's a cold, hard, biblical fact of Paul's life. Paul was in prison because Jesus wanted him there. Paul was in prison because Jesus wanted him there. Paul's not in prison because he's done something wrong or broken a law. He's in prison because he was a Christian and he was preaching Christ and he ran up against rulers and authorities because of this. And it's one thing to say, I'm a Christian and I've broken the law, therefore I'm in prison. But it's another thing to say, I'm a Christian and all I was trying to do was obey God and now I'm in prison because I was trying to obey God. And here's a principle. Here's a principle to live by. You need to know this as a Christian. You need to believe this as a Christian. That the more consistent Christian life you live, the more likely you are to suffer for Christ. Do you get that? The more consistent Christian life you live, the more likely you are to suffer for Christ. Let's say you're a waiter and you worked, I don't know, the 80s. And I was never a waiter. Christy told me that I, I needed to augment this, uh, this little illustration just a little bit because she said, you know, they don't keep their, their tips anymore by cash. Usually it's by credit card, so it's on the computer. But let's imagine you're a waiter working and all you receive are cash tips. Let's say you become a Christian and you become convicted that you haven't been accurately reporting your tips to the IRS. So very quietly, you decide, I'm going to report all of my tips accurately to the IRS. But then someone at your restaurant catches wind that you're doing this. And so all of your coworkers give you pressure and say, listen, you can't do that because then they're going to look at us and know that we haven't been accurately reporting our tips. The bosses hear about this and they decide to come to you and pressure you and say, listen, stop doing that. You're rocking the boat. There's going to be upheaval around here if you start accurately reporting your tips and nobody else is. But very quietly, you just say, you know, very respectfully, I'm I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really convicted about this. I, I think it's wrong. I need to do this. You stick to your guns. And eventually, you're fired. And not only are you fired, but you lose some of your waiter friends. You're you're fired strictly because you followed Jesus. Paul is saying that he was in prison because he was obedient to Jesus. I'm here for Christ's sake and his purposes. Here's the principle restated. Bad things happen to you, not just when you follow Jesus, but very often bad things happen to you because you follow after Jesus. 
Jesus. It would be bad enough if it were when, but it's because you're following after Jesus. So if you refuse to embezzle the money, or if you refuse to sleep with someone, or if you give a lot of your money away, or stand up against abortions, or if you identify yourself as a Christian, or if you refuse to lie in a situation in which it would be good for the people in your department, or if you continue to try to love a manipulative person, or if you turn the other cheek, or if you're consistently obedient to what the Bible says a Christian ought to do, it's inevitable that something bad is going to happen to you. Now, if you hate the thought of that, and if you've never wrestled with this, then it might mean that you're not living a Christian, consistent Christian life. Can I be that bold? Can I be that bold to say, if you're not wrestling with that, perhaps it's because you're in some ways chickening out In some ways, it's just too hard for you, the thought of that. Anybody who really lives a consistent Christian life needs to expect this. And if you're so angry with me you can't see straight right now, just hold on. Just just hold on. Sometimes obeying Jesus leads us into prisons. And that's not outside the purposes of Jesus Christ. That's his best for you. In fact, he's incapable of anything but his best for you. So hold on to that. Not only are we to be captured by Christ's purpose for us, but we need to be captured by God's grace to us as well. If you look at verses 2, 3, 4, and 6, in some fashion, Paul is saying, God has helped me to a deeper understanding of Christ's purpose. In verse 2, he says he's been entrusted with this grace. Verse 3, the mystery was made known to him by revelation. In other words, God has given me this tremendous insight, Paul says, into what his plans are for all human beings. I understand the gospel. I understand the message. That's my calling. I get it. That's come to me. But then in verses 7, 8, and 9, he says, so I became a servant of this gospel. By the gift of God's grace given to me by the work of his power. Notice he says, I was made a minister, a servant. This is, this is Big Saul, who in his transformation and conversion has become Saul. Do you know what Saul means? Saul means little. Big Saul has become little Paul. And he sees his whole life as in service to God. He's a minister of this gospel. He's saying, I don't belong to myself anymore. When I saw this gospel, when I saw what Jesus Christ had done, when I saw the beauty of him, when I saw how God brought everything together in Christ from the beginning of time, when I saw the theological answer to, in Christ from the beginning of time, when I saw all of that, the answer to all of history, how Jesus meets every single human need, and how he's going to draw all of history together, he says, I became a slave to that. I lost the rights of my life when I realized the greatness of this message. And he says, though I was the least of the apostles, I became herald of this. Paul's getting a sense of this privilege. He's saying, I've lost all right to my life, but no problem. That's how he views it. I've got no rights to my life. I'm not a prisoner, even of my own desires. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a servant of his. That's how he sees himself. 
He's saying it's a privilege to be able to tell even one person about this tremendous message. He's saying that his values and his priorities have been totally and completely reworked. Paul's saying that when his life changed, what he really wanted in life and the bottom line of his life changed. He's able now to say, I give up all rights to my life for the good of others and the glory of God. Can you say that about your life? And I struggle with that. I'll give up my life. I'll give up all the rights to my life for the good of others and the glory of God. That's how Paul sees it. He's saying, listen, once you realize that the thing that you're really after is Jesus is just to please him, this one who gave me this great gospel, the one who dwells or does all these wonderful things, the, the one to whom now I, all I want to do because of what all he's done for me is to serve him. I'm happy to do anything and experience anything because of you. You're able then to say, you want me to succeed? Wonderful. But if you have failure for me, that's fine too. As long as you're doing it for him, that's what he wants. If I succeed for you, that gives me all sorts of opportunities. But what we need to be able to see is that even when we fail or get stuck in prison or whatever, there are opportunities for us there as well. Paul's end-all and be-all in life is for the glory of God to be revealed in his life. Everything else is a means to that end. Can you say that about your own life? Can you say the end-all and be-all in life is the glory of God? You see, most of us want to say that. Most of us really, really, really want to be able to say that and live that way. But here's what we tend to struggle with. My end and all and be all is money. My end all and be all is power. My end all and be all is reputation. My end all and be all is to get married. My end all and be all is to have a family. And you see, if you set those things up as the end all and be all of life, this is how you relate to God. God, get me there. You see, God becomes the means to that end. But if God is the end, then all of those other things become the means to that end. So you treat money differently, you treat power differently. You treat reputation differently. You treat a husband or wife differently. You treat your children differently. What's the end all and be all of your life? Is it God? Or are, are you treating God as the means to the end of what you really want? Paul wanted to give everything back to God in gratitude for the grace God had shown to him. Well, not only do we need to be captured by Christ's purpose for us and God's grace to us, but we need to be captured by Christ's suffering for us as well. You know, the greatest quote on suffering that I could find comes from Elizabeth Elliot. She says, this is what the Bible says, he suffered not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we will become like him. 
the promise of the Bible, being a Christian doesn't mean that we will never suffer. The Bible does not promise that. The Bible is not promising to you and saying to you, he died that you might not die. The Bible is not saying to you he was tortured so that none of his followers would ever be tortured. The Bible is not saying that he bled to death so that none of those who believe in him might ever bleed to death. Or that he was persecuted so that none who ever followed after him will be persecuted. That's not what he said. That's not his promise to us. What it says is that when we do suffer, trusting in his suffering, our suffering would make us like him. We become like him through the suffering as we obey him. And as we obey and trust and look at him and say, because you suffered this much for me, I can suffer this little thing for you. Jesus, you suffered the wrath of God. I can certainly suffer losing my job or the disdain of my department. And you don't even ask me to do that alone. You've promised to be with me every step of the way. Jesus suffered with God turning his back on him. But the promise, though it's not, you will never suffer. The promise that God gives to us is that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be there, bended down to you, whispering in your ear, I'm here, I'm walking alongside of you. I will be so close to you during this time. Jesus suffered that when we suffer, it might not break us, but make us. In my suffering, and this is the mysterious thing, Not only do I become like him, I'm connected to him. I understand him more and more. I can give my life away to him more and more. When I look at the grand scheme of things and I say, Lord, I'm just suffering this little bit, but but as I think about what all you suffered on my behalf, it puts it all into perspective. I've come to understand you in a deeper way. I've come to, to understand what this suffering means, that this little thing that I've gone through, even if someone takes my life physically, It was nothing compared to what you experienced on the cross where God turned his back on you, where he suffered for us. And in my suffering, I get just a small taste of that. I come to know him more and more, deeper and deeper. And when we're tied to him in that way, the suffering, instead of cracking us apart, will make us whole. So are you able to look at suffering, not that you enjoy it, not that you look for it, but do you recognize still that it's a wonderful opportunity, an incredible opportunity to have your humility and your character and your faith and your patience deepened? Are you able to look at your circumstances and instead of thinking to yourself, I'm such a prisoner of this or that, to say, I'm not a prisoner of those things. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You notice that Paul doesn't just say that he's a prisoner. He says he's a prisoner on or on behalf or for you Gentiles. Paul says that the reason he's able to deal with his suffering is because he's realized that if he suffers gladly and happily, then he's not only pleasing Jesus, but he's also doing it for others' sake. Do you do that in the midst of your suffering and your discouragement? Do you look for opportunities around you to say, look, my job here is to trust God and for me to look for other ways to bless others? That's what Paul's doing in prison. He's not sitting there, hey guys, look at me. 
I'm in prison. I'm suffering now. I need all of you to bow down to me, to care for me, to, to wipe my wounds, to come here. He's not crying out and saying to the world, Paul is suffering. What he's doing and saying in his suffering, hey, everyone, look at God. Look how wonderful he is. He's not allowing the circumstances of his life to blind seeing God. He's not allowing the circumstances to dictate who he knows God to be. He's not looking at his circumstances and saying, because I'm in this circumstance, then that means God is off his throne. You see, Paul is that mature Christian who can look past the circumstances and see Jesus Christ. He's not blinded by his discouragement and suffering, by the circumstances around him. He's able to see through them, and being able to do that is allowing him to see past his prison and to see a palace. You know, one of the most beautiful things here as we approach the Lord's Supper, and what Paul says here in verses 11 and 12, it's actually two verses that we tend to just kind of gloss over. I don't know if it's because of the height of the theological, you know, truths that he's giving to us in verses 2 through 10. But look what he says there in verses 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have freedom, Paul says. We have confidence to approach our Father with boldness. You see, that's the gospel. I mean, what a beautiful two verses to sum up the gospel. We, we now have access to the God of the universe and not some far-off being, but who we saw last week is our Father, the one who's building us together, you know, one living stone at a time into the temple of God, and he's not just near us. He's not just with us as a Father, but he's in us. He dwells with us. You see the beauty of that? And we have access to God, our Father. What a, what a great text to approach the Lord's Supper. This is a picture of the Gospel. This is a picture of Christ's body given and broken for us that we might have access to our Father. And we have that access with confidence and boldness, knowing that He accepts us, that He has put His loving arms around us. That helps us as the mature Christian to see, to see past our circumstances and to see Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Nothing else. And all I want to do is please Him. Because I'm captured by Christ's purpose for me. I'm captured by God's grace to me. I'm captured by his suffering for me. And I'm enlivened and invigorated and energized to live for him no matter my circumstances. And as we approach the table this morning, let's do it with boldness and confidence, with great joy that we have a God and a Savior like this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who loves us and cares for us, a God who has sent your Son to redeem us, that now through him as we have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have 
that access to you with boldness and confidence as we come to you in faith. Father, thank you for this great gift. Remind us again as we come to your table of your love and your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.